Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice J, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, Sherlock Holmes and the Disappearance of Lady Frances Carfax by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Ah. For an instant I was on the point of rushing in. The door had been opened to admit the man and the burden. It was the woman who had opened. But as I stood there she caught a glimpse of me and I think that she recognized me. I saw her start and she hastily closed the door. I remembered my promise to you, and I am. You have done excellent work, scribbling a few words upon a sheet of paper. We can do nothing legal without a warrant, and you can serve the cause best by taking this note down to the authorities and getting one. There may be some difficulty, but I should think that the sale of the jewelry should be sufficient. Lestrade will see to all details. It may murder her in the mean... What could the coffin mean? And for whom could it be but for her? We will do all that can be done, Mr. Green. Not a moment will be lost. Leave it in our hands. Now, Watson, he added as our had hurried away, he will set the regular forces on the move. We are, as usual, the irregulars, and we must take our own line of action. The situation strikes me as so desperate that the most extreme measures are justified. Not a moment is to be lost in getting to Pulteney Square. Let us try to reconstruct the situation, said he, as we drove swiftly past the Houses of Parliament and over Westminster Bridge. These villains have coaxed this unhappy lady to London after first alienating her from her faithful maid. If she has written any letters, they have been intercepted. Through some confederate, they have engaged a furnished house. Once inside it, they have made her a prisoner, and they have become possessed of the valuable jewelry which has been their object from the first. Already they have begun to sell part of it, which seems safe enough to them since they have no reason to think that anyone is interested in the lady's fate. She is released. She will, of course, denounce them. Therefore, she must not be released. But they cannot keep her under lock and key forever. So, murder is their only solution. That seems very clear. Now we will take another line of... When you follow two separate chains of thought, Watson, you will find some point of intersection which should approximate to the truth. We will start now, not from the lady, but from the coffin, and argue backward. That incident proves, I fear, beyond all doubt, that the lady is dead. It points also to an orthodox burial, with proper accompaniment of medical certificate and official sanction. Had the lady been obviously murdered, they would have buried her in a hole in the back garden. But here all is open and regular. What does this mean? Surely that they have done her the death in some way which has deceived the doctor and simulated a natural end. Reasoning, perhaps. And yet, how strange that they should ever let a doctor approach her unless he were a confederate. Hardly a credible proposition. Could they have forged a medical certificate? Dangerous, Watson, very dangerous. No, I hardly see them doing it. Pull up, cabby! This is evidently the undertakers, for we have just the pawnbrokers. 
Go in, Watson. Your appearance inspires confidence. Ask what hour the Pulteney Square funeral takes place tomorrow. The woman in the shop answered me without hesitation that it was to be at eight o'clock in the morning. You see, Watson, no mystery. Everything above board. In some way, the legal forms have undoubtedly been complied with, and they think that they have little to fear. Well, there's nothing for it now but a direct frontal attack. Are you armed? I stick. Well, we should be strong enough. Thrice is he armed who hath his quarrel just. We simply can't afford to wait for the police or to keep within the four corners of the law. You can drive off, cabby. Now, Watson, take our luck together, as we have occasionally in the past. He rung loudly at the door of a great dark house in the center of Pulteney Square. It was opened immediately, and the figure of a tall woman was outlined against the dim-lit hall. "'Well, what do you want?' she asked sharply, peering at us through the darkness. "'I want to speak to Dr. Schlesinger,' said Holmes. "'There is no such person here,' she answered, and tried to close the door, but Holmes had jammed it with his foot. "'Well, I want to see the man who lives here, whatever he may call himself,' said Holmes firmly. She hesitated, and she threw open the door. "'Well, come in,' said she. "'My husband is not afraid to face any man in the world.' She closed the door behind us and showed us into a sitting room on the right side of the hall, turning up the gas as she left. "'Mr. Peters will be with you in an instant,' she said. Her words were literally true, for we had hardly time to look around the dusty and moth-eaten apartment in which we found ourselves before the door opened and a big, clean-shaven, bald-headed man stepped lightly into the room. He had a large red face with pendulous cheeks and a general air of superficial benevolence which was marred by a vicious "'There is surely some mistake here, gentlemen,' he said in an unctuous, make-everything-easy voice. "'I fancy that you may have been misdirected. Possibly if you tried farther down the street.' "'That will do. We have no time to waste,' said my companion firmly. "'You are Henry Peters of Adelaide, late the Reverend Dr. Schlesinger of Baden and South America. I am as sure of that as that my own name is Sherlock Holmes.' Peters, I will now call him, started and stared hard at his formidable pursuer. "'I guess your name does not frighten. Mr. Holmes, said he coolly. When a man's conscience is easy, you can't rattle him. What is your business in house? I want to know what you have done with the Lady Frances Carfax, whom you brought away with you from Bonnen. I'd be very glad if you could tell me where that lady may be, Peters answered quickly. I've a bill against her for nearly a hundred pounds and nothing to show for it but a couple of trumpery pendants that the dealer would hardly look at. She attached herself to Mrs. Peters and me at Baden. It is a fact that I was using another name at the time, and she stuck on to us until we came to London. I paid her bill and her ticket. Once in London, she gave us the slip, and as I say, left these out-of-date jewels to pay her bills. You find her, Mr. Holmes, and your I mean to find her, said Sherlock Holmes. I'm going through this house till I do find her. Where? 
is your warrant. Holmes half drew a revolver from his pocket. This will have to serve till a better one comes. Why, you're a common burglar. So you might describe me, said Holmes cheerfully. My companion is also a dangerous ruffian, and together we are going through your house. Our opponent opened the door. Fetch a policeman, Annie, said he. There was a whisk of feminine skirts down the passage, and the hall door was opened and shut. Our time is limited, Watson, said Holmes. If you try to stop us, Peters, you will most certainly get hurt. Where is that coffin which was brought into your house? What do you want with the coffin? It is in use. There is a body in it. I must see the body. Never with my... Then without... With a quick movement, Holmes pushed the fellow to one side and passed into the hall. A door half-opened stood immediately before us. We entered. It was a dining room. On the table, under a half-lit chandelier, the coffin was lying. Holmes turned up the gas and raised the lid. Deep down in the recesses of the coffin lay an emaciated figure. The glare from the lights above beat down upon an aged and withered face. By no possible process of cruelty, starvation, or disease... Could this worn-out wreck be the still beautiful Lady Frances? Holmes's face showed his amazement and also his relief. Thank, he muttered, it's someone else. Ah, you've blundered badly for once, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said Peters, who had followed us into the room. Who's the dead woman? Well, if you really must know, she is an old nurse of my wife's. Rose Spender, by name, we found in the Brixton Workhouse Infirmary. We brought her round here, called in Dr. Horsum, of 13 Furbank Villas. Mind you, take the address, Mr. Holmes. And had her carefully tended, as Christian folk should. The third day she died. Certificate says senile decay. But that's only the doctor's opinion. And of course, you know better. We ordered her funeral to be carried out by Stimson and Company of the Kennington Road, who will bury her at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Can you pick any hole in that, Mr. Holmes? You've made a silly blunder, and you may as well own up to it. I'd give something for a photograph of your gaping, staring face when you pulled aside that lid expecting to see the Lady Frances Carfax and only found a poor old woman of ninety. Holmes's expression was as impassive as ever under the jeers of his antagonist, but his clenched hands betrayed his acute annoyance. "'I am going through your house,' said he. "'Are you, though?' cried Peters, as a woman's voice and heavy steps sounded in the passage. "'We'll soon see about it. "'This way, officers, if you please.' These men have forced their way into my house, and I cannot get rid of them. Help me to put them out. A sergeant and a constable stood in the doorway. Holmes drew his card from his case. This is my name and address. This is my friend, Dr. Watt. Bless you, sir. We know you very well, said the sergeant. But you can't stay here without a warrant. Of course not. I quite understand that. Arrest him, cried Peters. We know where to lay our hands on this gentleman if he is one, said the sergeant majestically. But you'll have to go, Mr. Holmes. Yes, Watson, we shall have to go. A minute later we were in the street once more. Holmes was as cool as ever, 
but I was hot with anger and humiliation. The sergeant had followed us. Sorry, Mr. Holmes, but that's the law. Exactly, sergeant. You could not do otherwise. I expect there was good reason for your presence there. If there's anything I can do, it's a missing lady, sergeant, and we think she's in that house. I expect a warrant present. Then I'll keep my eye on the parties, Mr. Holmes. If anything comes along, I will surely let you know. It was only one o'clock, and we were off full cry upon the trail at once. First we drove to Brixton Workhouse Infirmary, where we found that it was indeed the truth that a charitable couple had called some days before, that they had claimed an imbecile old woman as a former servant, and that they had obtained permission to take her away with them. No surprise was expressed at the news that she had since died. The doctor was our next goal. He had been called in and found the woman dying of pure senility, had actually seen her pass away, and had signed the certificate in due form. I assure you that everything was perfectly normal and there was no room for foul play in the matter, said he. Nothing in the house had struck him as suspicious, save that for people of that class, it was remarkable that they should have no servant. So far and no further went the doctor. Finally, we found our way to Scotland Yard. There had been difficulties of procedure in regard to the warrant. Some delay was inevitable. The magistrate's signature might not be obtained until next morning. If Holmes would call about nine, he would go down with Lestrade and see it acted up. So ended the day, save that near midnight, our friend, the sergeant, called to say that he had seen flickering lights here and there in the windows of the great dark house, but that no one had left it and no one had entered. We could but pray for patience and wait for the morrow. Sherlock Holmes was too irritable for conversation and too restless for sleep. I left him smoking hard, with his heavy, dark brows knotted together and his long, nervous fingers tapping upon the arms of his chair as he turned over in his mind every possible solution of the mystery. Several times in the course of the night, I heard him prowling about the house. Finally, just after I had been called in the morning, he rushed into my room. He was in his dressing gown, but his pale, hollow-eyed face told me that his night had been a sleepless one. What time was the funeral? Eight, was it not? He asked he. Well, it is 7.20. Good heavens, Watson. What has become of any brains that God has given me? Quick, man, quick. It's life or death. A hundred chances on death to one on life. I'll never forgive myself. Never, if we are too late. Five minutes had not passed before we were flying in a hansom down Baker Street. But even so, it was twenty-five to eight as we passed Big Ben, and eight struck as we tore down the Brixton Road. But others were late as well as we. Ten minutes after the hour, the hearse was still standing at the door of the house, and even as our foaming horse came to a halt, the coffin, supported by three men, appeared on the threshold. Holmes darted forward and barred their way. Take it back, he cried, laying his hand on the breast of the foremost. Take it back this instant. What the devil do you mean? Once again I ask you, where is your warrant? shouted the furious Peters, his big red face glaring over the farther end of the coffin. The warrant is on its way. The coffin shall remain in the house until it comes. The authority in Holmes's voice had its effect upon the bearers. Peters had suddenly vanished into the house, and they obeyed these new orders. Quick, Watson, quick! Here's a screwdriver, he shouted as the coffin was replaced upon the table. Here's one for you, my man. A sovereign if the lid comes off in a minute. Ask no questions. Work away. That's good. Another. And another. Now pull all together. It's giving. 
It's giving! Ah, that does it at last. United effort, we tore off the coffin lid. As we did, there came from the inside a stupefying and overpowering smell of chloroform. A body lay within, its head all wreathed in cotton wool, which had been soaked in the narcotic. Holmes plucked it off and disclosed the statuesque face of a handsome and spiritual woman of middle age. In an instant, he had passed his arm round the figure and raised her to a sitting position. Is she gone, Watson? Is there a spark left? Surely we are not too late. For half an hour, it seemed that we were. What with actual suffocation and what with the poisonous fumes of the chloroform, the Lady Frances seemed to have passed the last point of recall. And then at last, with artificial respiration, with injected ether, and with every device that science could suggest, some flutter of life, some quiver of the eyelids, some dimming of a mirror, spoke of the slowly returning life. A cab had driven up, and Holmes, parting the blind, looked out at it. Here is Lestrade with his warrant, said he. He will find that his birds have flown. And here, he added as a heavy step hurried along the passage, is someone who has a better right to nurse this lady than we have. Good morning, Mr. Green. I think that the sooner we can move the Lady Frances, the better. Meanwhile, the funeral may proceed, and the poor old woman who still lives in that coffin may go to her last resting place alone. Should you care to add the case to your annals, my dear Watson, said Holmes that evening, it can only be as an example of that temporary eclipse to which even the best balanced mind may be exposed. Such slips are common to all mortals, and the greatest is he who can recognize and repair them. To this modified credit, I say, perhaps, make some claim. My night was haunted by the thought that somewhere a clue, a strange sentence, a curious observation, had come under my notice and had been too easily dismissed. Then suddenly, in the gray of the morning, the words back. It was the remark of the undertaker's wife, as reported by Philip Green. She had said, It should be there before now. It took longer being out of the ordinary. It was the coffin of which she spoke. It had been out of the ordinary. That could only mean that it had been made to some special measurement. But why? Why? Then in an instant, I remembered the deep sides and the little wasted figure at the bottom. Why so large a coffin for so small a body? To leave room for another body. Both would be buried under the one certificate. It had all been so clear if only my own sight had not been dimmed. At eight, the Lady Frances would be buried. Our one chance was to stop the coffin before it left the house. It was a desperate chance that we might find her alive, but it was a chance, as the result showed. These people had never, to my knowledge, done a murder. They might shriek from actual violence at the last. They could bury her with no sign of how she met her end. And even if she were exhumed, there was a chance for them. I hope that such considerations might prevail with them. You can reconstruct the scene well enough. You saw the horrible den upstairs, where the poor lady had been so long. They rushed in and overpowered her with a chloroform, carried her down, poured more into the coffin to ensure against her waking, and then screwed down the lid. A clever device, Watson. It is new to me in the annals of crime. If our ex-missionary friends escape the clutches of Lestrade, I shall expect to hear of some brilliant incidents in their future career. How about that? The old false sides on the coffin trick. Good number four. 
That was amazing. What's also amazing is the amount of deals that are going on right now. Buy at Amazon.com. Enter BVJ in the promo code and it will do absolutely nothing for this is not a sponsored read. I would like to remind you that you can help spread this podcast around. Give us a review on iTunes and tell everybody you know that you go to sleep with some lovely bedtime stories. You can send me stories to read. You can email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>